Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, Israel continues to prepare for a ground assault in Gaza. Legal and illegal immigration numbers soar to new record heights. The U.S. House devolves into further chaos. And Senate Democrats claim they have the votes to pass President Biden's aid plan. This is Dr. Tony Bean. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's time to crank it up. When you're doing something live, uh, <clears throat> you just never know what's going to happen during allergy season. I mean, your voice is liable to just go south at any moment without warning. Sorry about that. Um, hopefully, it'll hold up for me the whole hour this morning. I'm just having a lot of trouble with all the whatever the stuff in the air that I don't like. I don't like it a lot. Hope you had a great weekend. I need to tell you this morning that we're excited that Truth and Politics and Culture is being brought to you today by the McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm. McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, and Clarity have a proven track record of settling and trying cases in South Carolina. They have over 25 years of experience. They have 25 years of knowledge that has helped thousands of people thousands of people just like you. So if you're looking for experienced and successful personal injury lawyers in South Carolina who will fight for you, you can go to their website. That's McCraveyLaw.com, M-C-C-R-A-V-Y-Law.com, McCravey Law, to find out how the McCravey Newland Sturkey Clarity Law Firm will exceed your expectations. They know South Carolina law, and they know how to get results for you. So no, why not call them today? You can call for a free consultation. You can call 833-245-6565. Now, the number's fairly easy to remember, 833-245-6565, or you can go to the website, mccraveylaw.com. That's M-C-C-R-A-V-Y-Law.com. McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm is ready to represent you, and we appreciate them very much being a sponsor of truth and politics and culture. All right, a um, lot to talk about today, so we're going to go ahead and dive in. Two American hostages were released to the Red Cross on Friday in a break in the hostage situation. Now, there's o- there are over 200 hostages being held in Hamas, by Hamas in Gaza. Uh, still many, we think up to, well, the last number that I heard, let's put it that way, of American citizens, I think, stood at 14 Um, We've gotten up to, I think, 37, 38 Americans that are confirmed dead in the original attacks, and we're up to at at least 14 uh, hostages that are Americans that are being held. But Judith Heyman and um, her daughter, Natalie, are now safe in Israel. They live in Illinois, and they were in Israel to celebrate the birthday of a relative. They'll be given medical attention. Of course, they'll be debriefed before they return to Illinois. I don't know how much we're going to know about their captivity, probably not a lot. And to be honest with you, um, I don't need to know the details of what happened to them. I know the the way that Hamas treated the people that they killed in Israel uh, before they killed them. I can imagine, only imagine, 
the horrific experience that these hostages are having being held in Gaza. And, of course, they're fearing for their lives at every moment. They don't know uh, when the terrorists may just walk in and behead them and put it on video and use it for propaganda purposes. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure that we need to know the gory details of what happened to these two women while they were in custody. They deserve some privacy, uh, but we need to pray for them and pray that God will help them to work through whatever has happened to them. You can imagine what a traumatic uh, event that would be. You can only imagine. A Hamas spokesperson released a statement saying the two were released for, quote, humanitarian reasons. Now, that should cause you, in a very tragic and mocking way, to just laugh out loud that Hamas terrorists would use the phrase humanitarian reasons. Those two words should never be used in a sentence by anybody representing Hamas. Uh, obviously, they lack any ability to be reasonable or to use reason in their thinking about how they've chosen to, to treat their fellow human beings. And they've also demonstrated that they are humane by the actions that they took when they crossed the border, they broke the security fence, and came into Israel. So humanitarian has nothing to do with Hamas. People who use their own civilians, which they consider subjects under Sharia law, to shield uh, missile batteries, the, the kind of things that they do, um, there's nothing humanitarian about it. It's a joke for them to use that term. There's still over, as we said, 200 people that we know are being held hostage. They murdered 1,400 American and Israeli citizens at least, and um, and we don't know what condition these remaining hostages are in. Uh, there's no way for us to know. They'll parade them out on camera. We still don't know exactly what that means in terms of what kind of condition that they're in. Um, aid started arriving in Gaza through Egypt, mainly for those who have moved to the southern parts of the area because it's going to be difficult to, give, to send any aid to the northern parts that are being completely controlled by Hamas. Now, all of Gaza, we need to understand, is under the control of Hamas. And it's very, and unfortunately, it's very likely that humanitarian aid is going to end up in the tunnels underneath Gaza to feed the soldiers, the Hamas soldiers, that are waiting to kill Israeli soldiers when they enter into Gaza. And that's, that's a tragedy, but it's just a fact. Um, unless the humanitarian aid is managed by an outside source of some kind, then it's likely to fall in Hamas' hands. And like I said, any aid that winds up in the north is certainly going to be used for Hamas. Uh, Arab leaders are beginning to call for a ceasefire. They're accusing the United States of hypocrisy by calling out Russia for causing civilian casualties in Ukraine, but they're ignoring the civilians that are dying in Gaza. Now, let, let, let's unpack that just a little bit, because if, if you don't pay attention to the news and you don't understand the nature of what's happening in between Israel and Hamas, you might think that that is a valid argument, that if the Russians are killing civilians in Ukraine and Israel is killing civilians in Gaza, then those are moral equivalencies, but they aren't. Because for several reasons, number one, Russia is targeting, they're deliberately targeting Ukrainian civilians 
for the dual purpose of inflicting terror on the population and to degrade the Ukrainians' will to fight. I mean, obviously, if civilians are being bombed in their homes, if apartment complexes are being brought down, if hospitals are being struck, schools are being struck, that could cause the Ukrainian population to either be depressed or it will cause them to rise up in anger and determination to overcome the Russian invaders. And that's what's happened in Ukraine. I mean, the, the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian people have shown incredible resolve and determination to fight back against this Russian invasion, even though they're being treated in an atrocious way. Ukrainian uh, Russian soldiers have, there have been instances where Russians have behaved like Hamas in the slaughtering of civilians and in the rape of civilians as civilians when they first entered into Ukraine. So there, there's no comparison here with what Israel is doing. Israel does everything possible to avoid civilian casualties. They drop leaflets warning people that they're about to strike. Who does that? Who tells? I, I mean, you do realize, of course, that if you're telling the civilian population, this is where we're about to strike, you're telling the enemy at the same time, Hamas, that this is where you're about to strike, and they're able to move assets out of the area. They're, they're able to take deeper shelter while they force the civilians to, to stay and take the brunt of the attack. And yet Israel has no choice but to do everything they can to protect civilians and at the same time take out the military assets of Hamas. Israel begs people to leave the area where they know they're going to have to use strong military force in order to, to get Hamas out of the area. They, ha they have bombs. I mean, this is, I was amazed when I read about this that the Israelis have actually developed what amounts to a door knocker bomb. I mean, it, they drop it on a building. It just shakes the building. That's all it does. It lets the people know inside that they're about to take down that building. And Hamas, as we discussed last week, makes no distinction between fighters and subjects. People living under Sharia law are not citizens. They're subjects. And if they die in a holy war, then that's just the way it is. So th this is to, to compare what Russia is doing. If you really want to compare, it would be better to compare the Russian military to Hamas than to say that there's any moral equivalency by the death of civilians in Ukraine and the death of civilians in Gaza because of the attitude of the enemy and the attitude of Israel in trying to protect innocent life. Now, there's no doubt that since Hamas places their military operations in neighborhoods next to mosques and schools and next to hospitals, there are going to be civilian casualties. And every single civilian casualty in Gaza is the responsibility of Hamas. Every instance of civilians being used as human shields to guard Hamas's extensive network of tunnels or to protect military access, that all of those actions are war crimes, according to the Geneva Convention. You know, when, when war has to happen and when 1,400-plus of your citizens are brutally raped and murdered by an enemy, war is going to have to happen. But civilized countries realize that sometimes evil has to be addressed by violence. And that's unfortunate, but it's the only way to stop the perpetual violence 
that they have because sometimes there's only a peace that can be found on the other side of war once those who are willing to wage war in the way that Hamas is willing is eradicated because you can't negotiate with them. You can't sit down at the table. You can't have a conversation that says, would you guys be a little bit more reasonable when they begin with the idea that everybody has to die, including the people who are considered subjects in Gaza. So there have been several thousand casualties in Gaza, no question. Now, we'll never know exactly how many because you can't, every word that comes out of Hamas's mouth is a lie. In fact, at, at, according to the Quran, it's permissible to lie if you're lying to infidels. In other words, if you're progressing the, the identity or the, um, the name of Allah. So, so we know that Hamas, in, in, with their radical view of Islam, is, it, it, they don't care about the truth. They don't care about what they say to the infidel. They're, they're going to propagate lies if it promotes any advantage that they might have. Um, the density of the, pop, of the population of Gaza, I mean, you realize how many people are living in that little cramped space, three million people in, in, a, in a very densely populated area, and you factor in the fact that Hamas is not allowing most of the people to leave when Israel has encouraged them to leave. Only, um, I think only a few hundred thousand have actually made it south at this point. So you, you, you look... At any loss, we need to agree, and I, I, I have no problem with agreeing with this. Any loss of human life due, the, due to, to, the, to the barbarity of an enemy who would work to prevent civilians from fleeing for their safety is a tragedy. But what is the alternative here? The alternative is to allow Hamas to continue to be an existential threat to civilians in Israel. For Israel... The death of civilians is something they want to avoid as much as possible. For Hamas, the death of civilians is a tool of war. That's all it is. And, and why am I talking about this? I mean, I know, I'm sure there are people that um, are listening live and, and listening to the podcast who are like, it, it, there's so many other things going on in the world. We're going to talk about some of those other things today. But I think it's incredibly important that we continue to talk about and get the facts out about Israel and about Hamas. Because if we don't, then the, the people, it, the United States support for Israel is going to have to remain firm when this ground war begins. And I'm concerned about that. I mean, the, the protest around the world, when, when you look at London, there were 100,000 protesters in the streets in London. Now, the protesters, the protests in London were fairly... Uh, were pretty much peaceful. It was just the number that sort of shut the city down for a while. But in New York and Brooklyn, you had violent clashes between police and, and pro-Palestinian protesters. And, you know, I guess here uh, they get their playbook from Antifa. But they, there, was, um, there, there were clashes that, that, turned, that got pretty seriously violent, according to, to the police in Brooklyn, that... Were so the protests were not peaceful, uh, really at all, and this is going to continue. This is going to ramp up. It's 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 not going to lessen in intensity. In fact, the minute Israel steps off into Gaza, those protests and the cry for a ceasefire, 
from pro-Palestinians, pro-Hamas people is going to get is going to get the the volume is going to be raised, and the United States can't step back from their support. A lot of politicians, if they're squishy, if they're wobbly, they're going to begin to hear these cries about about oh this. There's too many civilian casualties. There's too much of this. Israel has a right to defend itself. And the only way it can defend itself against Hamas is to get rid of Hamas. Because if they're allowed to exist, if this doesn't result in the destruction of Hamas, then Hamas will attack Israel again. Now, for the moment, the ground war is on hold, but it will happen. I, I saw some articles over the weekend, one in The Atlantic, one in Wall Street Journal, that suggested that maybe the United States is putting pressure on Israel and maybe they'll back off of a ground invasion. I, I don't think there's any way that that's going to happen. Over the weekend, Israel's defense minister, in fact, told the troops at the border with Gaza, now you see Gaza from afar, soon you will see it from within, the order will come. Now that's coming from the defense minister of Israel. And the order has to come. I mean, there's no other way again, to make sure that Hamas is eradicated and that Israel can be safe and not have to endure these attacks again. Um, a, a lot of the leaders of Hamas have already been taken out, the ones that are in Gaza. We still have the command structure. I mean, the, the top leadership, again, are still in Qatar or Qatar, whichever way you want to pronounce it. But so uh, even though those leaders are being taken out by air power, the power of Hamas can't be broken from the air alone. That's always true. You can wage an air war, but if you're going to win a war, you have to have soldiers that are willing to go in on the ground, even though it's going to be very difficult. In fact, it'll be a long and bloody process. Urban warfare always is. And you've got a tunnel system in Gaza that has electricity. It's stocked with military supplies. It's where the fighters are hiding. They have a rail system underground that allows them to move assets quickly from one place to another. I mean, folks, we need to think about this when we think about Hamas taking over in, in Gaza. When Israel abandoned or left Gaza in 2004, Gaza could have been a paradise for the Palestinian people. It, it's, it's right on the Mediterranean. I mean, they could have invested and turned it into the paradise of the Middle East, but instead they chose Hamas as their leadership and they've turned it into a fortress against Israel. They've robbed the people of the wealth that could have come to them had Gaza become what it could be, and they've, they've taken that wealth and turned it into a tunnel system that allows them to continually attack Israel. So that's been the whole purpose. The whole purpose of, of Hamas is to eradicate Israel, and they've been building over the years. They've just been working toward this moment. And so in, instead of allowing the people to turn Gaza into a paradise, they've turned it into one of the most terrible places on earth where the citizens are mistreated, again, not citizens, but subjects under Sharia law. And it's it's simply been a launching pl platform for missiles being fired into Israel. And for a while, Israel was willing 
to allow to treat Hamas in Gaza like it was just a you know sort of a, a nuisance, something that they had to put up with. And every now and then they're going to have rockets come in to to Israel, and and they would they would get the Iron Dome system deployed. Uh, they would take out most of the rockets. The rockets that were fired uh, for most of the time from 2004 on were not very sophisticated. They didn't have sophisticated guidance systems, so a lot of them ended up landing in unpopulated areas. People were able to, with Israel's extensive civil defense system and the Iron Dome, people were able to go underground when they heard the sirens. It was inconvenient, but it was saving their lives, and the Iron Dome took out the majority of the missiles that were fired. But now there's something new. This is completely different. This is not a situation where they can just treat Hamas as, well, maybe they'll be peaceful for a while. When they get active, we'll shoot down the missiles, we'll put people in bunkers, we'll ride it out, and then we'll just have this coexistence that goes on. But when Hamas breached the security system and went into Israel and killed 1,400 people, the worst death of Jews since the Holocaust, um, there's, there's no that that's a that's a new paradigm, that's a new dynamic, and Israel knows it, and that's why they're ramping up for the possibility of war on at least two fronts. When they go into Gaza, if Lebanon, if Hezbollah in Lebanon goes into Israel in the north, Israel has said that they have the assets to destroy them, and they've even said there's a story out today, and I I have to tell you I I was stunned by this. Um, th this is coming from the Daily Wire. Ryan Saavedra, uh, near Bakat, Israel's minister of economy, warned Israel's enemies, namely Iran, that they will pay dearly if they decide to join Hamas's war against Israel. Bakat's remarks came as the Israel Defense Forces have pounded northern Gaza with precision airstrikes targeting terrorist infrastructure after warning civilians repeatedly to evacuate the area. Fear has risen that as Israel prepares to enter Gaza for its ground offensive, against Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, that Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed terrorist group based in Lebanon, could enter the war by attacking from the north. Speaking with the Daily Mail on Sunday, Barak, uh, oh, excuse me, Barkat, who said last week that Israel's military has been given the green light to, light to launch the offensive, warned Iran that Israel will strike back if Hezbollah enters the war. He said that not only will Israel eliminate Hezbollah, Israel will actually target Iran and will wipe them out. He called it cutting off the head of the snake. Which, folks, this is true. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's scary to contemplate that Israel would attack Iran. I think right now uh, the Israelis are depending on the United States show a force in the Red Sea, the Med in the Mediterranean, to deter Iran from getting into the war. But there's a story out today also that said that uh, Secretary of State Blinken and the Biden administration says that the United States will enter the war if Iran gets involved. If the war expands, then the United States is going to be willing to, to respond by engaging militarily. And, I mean, every, you know... You know what that means. I mean, we have no idea at this point what Russia and China will do. If, if the war expands, the best scenario here, let's, let's back up and talk about it. What's, what's the best scenario that can come out of this? The best, and what they're hoping, 
What Israel and the United States is hoping for is a controlled engagement where Israel goes into Gaza, they successfully uh, eradicate Hamas as a, they're not going to be able to, to get all the terrorists, but to at least take down their structure to the point that Hamas is not capable of, of attacking Israel again in the manner in which they did. And you've got harassment from the north by Hezbollah, but they don't enter the war. You've got support from Iran to Hamas, but Iran doesn't enter the war. That's the best case scenario, where this remains between Israel and Hamas. But if Iran, if Hezbollah attacks Israel in the north, that's a signal that Iran is sent. I mean, Hezbollah is a direct proxy of Iran. And so if that happens, Israel will attack Iran. And if Israel attacks Iran, the United States will get into the conflict, I believe. And you're going to have open warfare between the United States and Iran. So the next best scenario, if that happens, is that only Iran gets into the fight. Now, from reports that I've read and people I've talked to in Washington, they're confident, and I, you know, how much stock you can put in that, that's up to you. But the people that I've talked to are confident that the United States could quickly uh, take out Iran's ability as a military force, assuming that Iran doesn't already have nuclear weapons. And that's the concern. That's the unknown. Because we just, we, our intelligence, we think we know that Iran is not nuclear capable yet. We know that they want to be. We know that the Biden administration is allowing them to stay on a path where they will get a nuclear weapon, which is the most outrageous foreign policy decision. How in the world, particularly now, could you ever say that Iran should have a nuclear weapon? I mean, you cannot negotiate with terrorists. You cannot sit down and have them tell you something and take their word that they're not going to develop a nuclear weapon. They just want to have nuclear reactors and nuclear power. That is never going to be the truth. If Iran had a bomb, I believe they would use it. Now, if when Israel goes into Gaza, I think we're going to find out if Iran has a bomb. Because I, I, I think Israel, I think Iran, the, the, the mullahs, the Ayatollah, the radical nature of, of, the, of Shia Islam in Iran, and the hatred towards Sunnis. I mean, the only reason that Iran would hold back is if they used a nuclear weapon in Israel. I mean, they actually want to, well, there are a couple of reasons. One, they actually want to occupy that space. And if they use a nuclear weapon against Israel, they're not going to be able to occupy anything for a long time. I mean, one or two nuclear explosions in Israel would take out the whole country. Um, the other reason, of course, is that if Iran were to use nuclear weapons, Iran would cease to exist. The United States would, and Israel both would retaliate. And then who knows what happens. But the best-case scenario, Israel goes in, takes out Hamas, Iran, Hezbollah stays out. Next best case after that Hezbollah comes in in the north. Israel attacks Iran. The United States joins them. Iran is rendered incapable 
of sending more military aid, they cease to be the number one terrorist exporter because their capacity to do that is taken out militarily by the United States and Israel. That's the next, that, that would be the next, but that would be control to keep it to Iran and its proxies. But then if Russia joins the fight, and it's, that's possible, uh, and then if China gets in, now we're talking about essentially World War III. Uh, we can avoid World War III all the way up to the point that Russia, and as long as Russia and China stay on the sidelines. But if they decide to get in this, um, we're, we're, we're in a whole different situation. And so we need, we need to pray about this. I mean, th this is something that believers, uh, followers of Jesus Christ, we, we need to pray that this, this war will remain contained within Israel and Gaza. That's the best case scenario. We need to pray for the protection of the innocent. We need to pray that, that those who are in Gaza, who are not directly involved in the war, who are victims of Hamas, just as sure as those that were killed when Hamas came across the border. I mean, they're, they're, they're again, subjects, human shields. We need to pray for them and their families. Uh, we need to pray for these two hostages that have been released because we, who knows what they've suffered or how long it's going to take them to recover. And we need to pray for their families as they prepare to welcome them back home after they've received medical attention and been debriefed. All right, um, just another thing quickly, uh, and we'll wrap up our talk about the war. Uh, there's some polling out today that I thought was interesting. A majority of Muslim Americans believe Hamas was justified in its terror attacks against Israel. This is according to a new poll late last week that found that the majority of Muslim Americans believes that Hamas was justified. The poll from uh, Signal surveyed over 2,000 people from October 16th to 18th to gauge the public's overall awareness and attitudes about what was happening in Israel. A majority, 50.6%, have a positive opinion of Israel compared to only 12% who have a negative opinion, while 37% were neutral. Now, it, it, it fascinates me that 37% in this poll could be neutral. That when you have, well, we've talked about the, the, the terrible things that Hamas has done. I, I don't know how you can be neutral about Israel or neutral about that after you know about the attacks, unless the, this 37%, they just don't know what's going on. The two groups that had the highest negative views of Israel were Muslim Americans at 36.5% and Democrats at 15.7%. That's negative views of Israel. The groups that had the largest positive views of Israel were Jewish Americans at 85% versus 5% negative and Republicans at 65% versus 9% negative. The results showed that Muslim Americans were far less educated about numerous aspects of the atrocities committed by Palestinian terrorists than Jewish Americans. For example, only 10.8% of Jewish Americans were not aware of the fact that Hamas had decapitated babies compared to 34.1% of Muslim Americans who were not aware. Overall, the overwhelming majority of Americans strongly 
About 84% said that Israel had the right to defend themselves against Hamas terrorist attacks, and about 75% of Americans said that Hamas was not justified in attacking Israel. Those are the overall numbers. Now, when you start looking at the protest, I mean, there's a, there's a big difference between the pro-Israel and the pro-Palestinian protest. I mean, in, in Sydney, Australia, you actually had people supporting Palestine and Hamas. They were actually chanting, gas the Jews. That's a Western country. I mean, that's Sydney, Australia. Um, and then as you begin to drill down and, and there are interviews being conducted, the Daily Signal actually went out and attended a pro-Palestine demonstration at George Mason University. And here's what some of the students had to say about the Israel-Palestine conflict and the Hamas terrorist attacks. This is about a minute and 24 seconds. I think I'm going to play most of it for you uh, because this is pretty revealing. This, again, is coming from the Daily Signal today. Did you guys see the news reports about them parachuting or hang gliding into that rave? I don't know, I don't know about the full detail, but I don't think they did all that, to be honest with you. Oh, you don't yeah. think so? The baby story you were talking about, I keep asking people because that was babies whose heads were cut off by Hamas, this terrorist group. But the protest here today was celebrating Hamas. Every single martyr must be born. And that's why we're confused. Was it really... Calling them martyrs. Some people saying they're freedom fighters, and other people saying it's they're like uh, terrorists, kind of like ISIS. They have been designated as a terror group by the U.S. since 1997. Do you think that matters at all, or is that up, kind of up for debate as well? I don't think that's kind of up for debate as well. Like Israel, they've done much worse to the people of Palestine. The one time they decide to fight back because it's their land, and this is going to make a big deal about that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Do you think making a big deal about rape and murder is a bad thing? I'm not. I'm not supporting those actions at all. But, uh, like, listen, I'm supporting them fighting back for the country. Have they gone too far? Okay, maybe they've gone too far with that stuff, obviously. But if they want to fight back for the country, there's a way to do it. Maybe they took it a bit too far. Well, if they're celebrating the attacks, which are done by Hamas, do you think that counts as supporting Hamas? Not necessarily. I think that they're kind of not in a way celebrating because, obviously, like, their country's in, like, a very bad position right now. Like, there's a lot of war and a lot of, like, destruction happening to both sides. Honestly, like... I think that just peace would be great between the two. Yeah, that, that would be great. Peace would be great between the two, but that can't happen when you begin the conversation with peace means we get to live, and if you're a Jew, you have to die. There can't be peace in that situation. Uh, there, it, it, it would be Israel has given up land. Israel has bent over backwards trying to have peace. Israel's done everything that it could do to try to support the people in Gaza while fighting against Hamas. They've allowed people in Gaza to come into Israel. Now, now that's just think about this. 87%, according to polling coming out of Gaza, of the Palestinian people believe that Israel should, I mean, they agree with Hamas, that Israel needs to be wiped off the planet. Now, if, if, if Israel is allowing them, giving them work visas, allowing them to come into Israel and have jobs to support their families to the tune of about 17,000 a day crossing over that border, and, and then even Israel was talking about before this war expanding that number greatly. So how, what, what, could, what else 
could Israel do when they're pouring aid into Gaza to try to help the people to demonstrate that they're not against the Palestinian people having a life in Gaza. In fact, they left in 2004 to make that possible. And it just fascinates me that you you have people who, who don't understand that. Listen to this student. This is heartbreaking. I'm not going to play all of this because it's about two and a half minutes, but this is a George Mason, Mason University alum. There's been a, a lot of pro-Palestinian um, uh, rallies at George Mason University. Um, and, and this is what she's talking about. She says it's terrifying, especially for Jewish students, because people need to understand that when they're saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, they're talking about the destruction of the Israeli people, the Jewish people. Here we go. As a George Mason alumni and as somebody who works in the pro-Israel space, this is honestly kind of terrifying in so many ways, especially for the Jewish students that are here on campus. It's also just outright propaganda. It's dismissing the, like, even if you want to sort of get away from the Israel side of things, what this is doing is essentially enabling Hamas to continue to oppress the Palestinian people that they claim that they support, that they want to liberate when Hamas is trying to maximize the amount of Palestinians that die in every conflict. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, obviously that's true. We've talked about that a lot here on the program in the last couple of days. Um, And I, I certainly... We can, a reasonable person, which going back to what we talked about earlier, humanitarian, reasonable, that, that, that there's, there's nothing reasonable, nor is there anything that relates to humanitarian behavior that can be attributed to Hamas. And that's why this young lady is correct. She has, where some of these other people that they were talking to um, were just, they were clueless, mostly about what Hamas was doing. And they tried to say that, well, it, it needs to be, it's equally both Hamas and Israel's problem. It's not equal when the tactics of Hamas are what they are. And so anyway, all right, we've, we've, we've covered that today for about as much as, as much as we can. Let's move on and talk a little bit about illegal immigration numbers and legal immigration numbers. We've got a new record at the southern border in the past 12 months that have been just over 2 million illegal alien apprehensions at the border, and that beats the 1.7 million that was President Biden's previous record during the Biden administration. The number is stunning as much for what it does does not include as for what it does include. I mean, that's, that's just over 2 million that we know about. It doesn't include people who came through a port of entry or one of president of the Biden administration's expanded parole programs or any other legal pathway. And that amounts to about another 1.1 million immigrants that have come to the United States since October of 2022. So you put that together and you've got about 3.2 million people that have entered the country. Now, we can debate all day long about whether uh, President Biden's parole program is legal. Um, according to the, the at least until a judge or a court rules it illegal, uh, it is a le- it is considered to be a legal pathway. But it doesn't take into consideration it. It's simply giving people that would have come illegally the opportunity to come through uh, come by a path that is legal. 
And look, I get it. Once again, I mean, you've got people that are fleeing terrible conditions, and the United States is a compassionate country, and Christians should be compassionate toward people who are being displaced in their own country, but we have to have a border. We have to have an immigration process that makes sense. And the Biden administration has none of that. We don't have a border. We don't have an immigration uh, process that makes any sense. So it, it and the other big number that's not included in this number, this over 2 million, is the number that are counted as getaways. Those who came across the border illegally and were undetected, or in some way they were able to avoid the border patrol. And we obviously don't know how many that is, but it's estimated that it's in the hundreds of thousands. And these numbers account for the entire U.S., not just the southern border. But you know how much of this is from the southern border? 99%. So we just as well say it's the southern border because there's no the northern border with Canada, people talk about that sometimes. I've seen media reports that say, well, we talk a lot about the southern border, but we don't talk about the northern border. The southern border is where 99% of all this is taking place. Of the roughly 2 million that were arrested, here's, here's a little bit of a breakdown. Now, this is according to Daily Wire. 620,000 are part of a family unit. So you've got the uh, about, what percentage is that? Uh, it'd be about 40%, I guess. I'm doing that in my head, and that's a terrible place for me to do math or for anybody to think that math should be done. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying... That, that's in the neighborhood. Well, close to 130,000 of, of the number, of the 2 million number, are 18 or under, or what the U.S. calls unaccompanied minors. And the rest, now, this is something to wrap your mind around. The rest, about 1.3 million, are all single adults, and most are coming from the Northern Triangle. The Northern Triangle includes um, El Salvador it includes Guatemala, it includes Honduras, and then you go further south and you have people coming from Nicaragua, people coming from Venezuela, but there are also people coming from Africa. They're coming from the Middle East. Some are coming from China. Some are coming from India. And the number of terror suspects who've tried to enter the country that we know of. Now, again, this is these are the ones that, thankfully, are being caught because they're on terrorist watch list. So that's increased from single digits annually to 169 in 2023. You think people are trying to get across the southern border so they can hurt us? You think the warnings about sleeper cells in the U.S. are just scare tactics? I don't think they are. Now, I'd, these are things that we don't know for sure. In other words, are there uh, sleeper cells? You have people in the FBI that say that there are. You have people in law enforcement everywhere that say that this is a concern that they have. And my question is, if we know that they're here and we know that they're sleeper cells, why aren't they being arrested? Why, aren't, why isn't the ability for them to be sleeper cells being thwarted by law enforcement? I mean, I, you know, evidently, we don't know for sure. And it could be that some of these sleeper cells are being thwarted, and we just we don't know for sure about that either. Um, the northern border with Canada um, has normally been the place where most attempt to enter illegally who are 
terrorist suspects on the terror watch list. But you know how many were arrested in 2023 at the northern border? Three. But 484 suspected terrorists were arrested at a port a port of entry. So they were trying to get into the country legally, but it somebody realized they were on a terrorist watch list. So that means if you put all that together, over 700 suspected terrorists were arrested trying to enter the country. Now, I think it would be foolish to assume that we got them all. I don't think it would be right to assume that large numbers made it in. I mean, I, you know, there's, there's no reason to suggest that, but I think it's reasonable to believe that if that number were caught, that likely we didn't catch all of them. And, and we, that's the thing that we, we don't know. Um, just some other information from the border. Governor Abbott announced that he has sent 58,000 migrants to sanctuary cities. And if you want to know the breakdown, that's 12,000 to Washington, D.C., 20,000 to New York, 16,000 to Chicago, and 4,000 to Philadelphia and L.A. Now, these are all cities that have declared themselves to be sanctuary cities. So they should be welcoming these immigrants and doing everything they can to accommodate for them. But there's a lot of pushback, obviously, because these Democrat governors and mayors understand that their rhetoric about sanctuary cities doesn't go as far as actually receiving people to come and live there. I mean, it was just rhetoric. It was just talk to inspire progressives to go out and vote for them. It, it, it wasn't a policy. And now that they're having to have a policy, they're looking at it in a different light. El Paso's mayor, Democrat Oscar Leeser, has bussed about 7,700 uh, immigrants since September. And these are illegal immigrants, by the way, that have, got, have made it to El Paso. And, and, and um, Leeser is a, is a Democrat. He's bussed them since September, 7,700, to New York, Chicago, and Denver. And if you're wondering, when you're talking about a bus, how many buses? We're talking about 170 busloads in less than a month, and that number is expected to continue to rise as the number of illegal crossings continues to arise. To rise, so we've got. Uh, I mean, this this is something that has to be addressed. I mean, I don't know how we can force the Biden administration to take this on, I, I, but it it we can't be so distracted by. The big news, and, and don't get me wrong, we need to be focused on what's happening in the Middle East, but we, we can't be focused on it to the exclusion of what's happening at our southern border. We need to understand the immigration problem. We need a, a, an immigration system that allows people to come to the United States, but we, we also have a system where we manage the border where whatever is necessary, whether it's walls or electronic detection or all of the above, we have to have a secure southern border. And we do not. We don't have anything close to it. It's unprecedented what's going on down there. And that has to be laid at the Biden administration's feet. All right, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the United States House. Uh, there are let me find my story here. Nine candidates now who want to be Speaker of the House now that uh, that Matt Gates has planned to get rid of Kevin McCarthy. 
Um, this is going on now the third week without a speaker. House Republicans, this is according to Daily Wire, House Republicans will hear from nine candidates in the next forum to help their party decide on a new nominee for speaker. House Republican Conference Chairwoman Elise Stefanik announced on Sunday. In a post to X shortly after the noon deadline, Stefanik said the candidates include Representative Jack Bergman, um, is and uh, Brian Donalds, Representative Tom Emmer, Kevin Hearn, Mike Johnson, Dan Messer, Gary Palmer, Austin Scott. Let's see if there's a, a couple of more here, and Pete Sessions. So that's the nine that are going to be up for a vote. Now the forum is set to take place on Monday at six thirty. So this is. Again, in, in a mess like this, at least Republicans are having the messiest part of it to take place behind closed doors. It's, it's not a very good thing for votes to take place and Republicans to demonstrate that they just cannot find a speaker. They can't come together, but um, they are, and, and you know, at least behind closed doors, having some of the discussions that if they had them out in the public, it would be devastating. For the for Republicans, forum is set take, to take place Monday at 6:30, following an initial closed door forum the GOP held after the House voted to remove Representative Kevin McCarthy as Speaker earlier this month. That earlier uh, forum featured a face-off between Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, who had the backing of former President Donald Trump. Now Jordan didn't uh, Jordan didn't didn't come close. I think his high watermark was 20 Republicans that voted against him. And then uh, subsequent votes, there were more Republicans that didn't vote for him. And so there was no way that he was going to be Speaker. He wanted to keep having votes, but the more votes he had, the more support he lost. And so when they got together, they said, you know, look, uh, we're going to withdraw you being the, the candidate. You, you need to step out. You're not going to get the votes. Uh, Scalise won the nomination, of course, ended his, ended his candidacy. Uh, we know about Jordan. I just talked about what happened to him. So we've got Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry, um, and he said House Republicans will hold their next internal election on Tuesday at 9 a.m. House floor votes on the speakership could happen as early as later that day, later tomorrow. A simple majority is needed for victory. Let's listen to a little bit about what Patrick McHenry said as the acting speaker or speaker pro tem. Hi, everybody. Um, House Republicans will return on Monday at 6.30 p.m. for a candidate forum, followed by uh, an election process on Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. The reason why I made that decision is we need space and time for candidates to talk to other members. Um, it's fair to say that uh, Leader Scalise wasn't given adequate time. He had 24 hours to campaign. I don't think that was right for him. Our nominee, Jordan, was given a little more time. Not right for him. The conference made a decision that we're going to move forward with a new speaker nominee today. Um, but the space and time for a reset is, I think, an important thing for House Republicans. Now, on the national security front, we have fully constituted committees. Committees can still work, and they are working. Okay, let's let, let's stop right there because he's going to go on and say some other stuff about what the House can do under his leadership as Speaker Pro Tem. 
Um, to say that Jordan didn't have enough time, to say that Scalise didn't have enough time, there, it's not about time. It's about whether the time that would be taken is going to result in any change. And with both Scalise and with Jordan, it was obvious that they were not going to be able to get the votes. Um, uh, Jordan used pressure tactics, and it didn't work. I mean, sometimes pressure on people can get them to, to switch their vote, but not when the emotions and some of the political disagreements um, and, and some of the grudges, quite frankly, between House members are as high as they are. Pressure tactics are, are, are not going to turn the tide. They're not going to win the day. In fact, they drove people away from Jordan as much as they brought people to the table. In fact, more so. And so as they get behind closed doors today, they're going to have to winnow this number down. I mean, you've got, you're going to have nine people trying to gain support to be speaker. Does anybody think that that's going to happen with nine candidates? I mean, this is like trying to choose a Republican candidate for president. You've got all these candidates out there. They've got percentages of, of support, and and but they're they're not doing anything to cut into the lead that that President Trump has. I mean, right now he's the far and away winner of the Republican nomination. If things don't change when we get into the actual primary season, um. And, and this is, but, but there's no one in the House that has that kind of standout qualities that makes them the, the one who is going to, to win the nominate or win the, the gavel. It's just, you've got nine people and they've all got their little factions that are supporting them. And that's, I, I don't see that as being a path to elect a speaker. I, and, and this, I, you know, McHenry's right when he talks about, yeah, the committees are working, but a total action by the House um, that is going to be necessary on some of the issues that are before us right now that are fairly important. I mean, that's an understatement, of course. I'm being facetious. They're incredibly important. Um, they're going to have to be able to function. To function fully, they're going to have to have a speaker. And all I can say is that I hope the Republicans get their act together. I mean, right now, it's not. Over in the Senate, uh, you know, President Biden has requested, I forget the exact amount, was $111 billion, $110 billion, somewhere over, I think, $100 billion in aid, a lot of it going to Ukraine, um, and some of it going to Israel, but some of it going other places. That And, and what Republicans are concerned about right now is that the aid going to Ukraine is not going to go for military purposes, but to shore up the government, and they believe the government is corrupt. So they don't want the aid. They want to make sure that we, if we're going to hand money to the Ukrainians, that the money goes for the purpose that it was intended, which is to help Ukraine fight off the Russian invasion, not to do anything else. And so Republicans are saying that the, as presented, Biden's, ask for funds is dead on arrival in the Senate. But with all due respect, Republicans can't say what's dead on arrival in the Senate without Democrat support. And Chuck Schumer came out over the weekend and said that the Democrats are ready to pass this. And then what's going to happen in the House? Well, we don't know because we're going to have to have a speaker before that question can be answered. And so there's just, there's just a lot right now 
that uh, as as Christians we need to be lifting before the Lord. You know, I believe in I believe in God. I believe in God's sovereignty. I believe in His Son Jesus Christ, who makes it possible for us to have eternal life because His death on the cross brought forgiveness for our sin. It set us free from the bondage of sin. Um, I believe that as believers, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that Christ's death opened up the way to heaven for us to come into the throne room of grace to pray. And I believe we need to pray as believers for the world situation that we're in. Um, It's very perilous at the moment. There's so much on the table um, it, it, we, I don't know if people realize how close we are to the possibility of another world war. And if it happens, it will touch us, I believe, here in a way that the other world wars did not. You know, World War One, World War Two, they were fought over there. But in today's technology, um, whether it's cyber, whether it's terrorist activity, whether it's a direct attack, Um, the possibility exists that the United States drawn into a war that we would see the results of that war here. And so we need to be praying about this. Um, We need to be praying that order can be restored in our immigration system, that order can be restored in the House, that right now we're dealing with so much chaos and we've got to find our way out of it. We need reasonable people who are grounded in morality that's greater than just their own sense of morality. It, it has to have its grounding in something. It needs to be grounded in the Word of God. Um, and we as believers need to be praying about that. All right. I want to thank one more time our sponsor today. Uh, we welcome uh, as a sponsor the McCravey Newland Sturkey Clarity Law Firm. Uh, they have a proven track record of settling and trying cases in South Carolina. They have 25 years of experience. They have 25 years of knowledge. They've been able to help because of that, because of their experience and knowledge. They've been able to help thousands of people like you. So if you're looking for experienced and successful personal injury lawyers in South Carolina, people that you can be confident are going to fight for you, you need to go to McCraveyLaw.com. That's M-C-C-R-A-V-Y-L-A-W, all one word, McCraveyLaw.com. To find out how the McCravey Newland Sturkey Clarity Law Firm will exceed your expectations. They know South Carolina law and they know how to get results for you. You can call them at 833 245 6565. That's 833 245 6565 for a free consultation. But the best way is to go to McCravey Law, M C C R A V Y Law. McCravey Law Firm is ready to represent you. Well, that's all the time that we have today for Truth and Politics and Culture. Listen, thank you for joining me live on Facebook for those who do every day, Monday through Friday, 7.30 to 8.30. And thank you for those that are downloading the podcast. It's free, just like the best things in life. You just go look for Truth and Politics and Culture. You can put my name in at Spotify or Apple Podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, Please tell your friends about it and leave me a good review where you download your podcast so that other people will see that and maybe they'd like to listen too. God bless you. I'll see you in the morning at 730.